to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Did you know that our PC society has gotten so bad that the Council of American Muslim Relations, better known as CARE, was able to bully the U.S. military? At the same time, it showed how duplicitous this Muslim organization really is. Now, this is a story. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. The Army War College in Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, they made a really bad decision. And CARE has once again shown its true colors. The right to say what they believe as it is guaranteed in the Constitution, that's okay for them. But the same guarantee, the same First Amendment, is not okay for you if what you say offends them. So the story began when historian Raymond Ibrahim was invited to speak at the U.S. Army War College. Ibrahim is author of the book Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War, between Islam and the West, which I highly recommend, by the way. Ibrahim's invitation, dated January 4th, 2019, read as follows. Mr. Ibrahim, on behalf of the director and staff of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, I am honored to invite you to speak as a part of our 2019 Perspectives in Military History lecture series. The Perspective Series attracts a wide audience, including the U.S. Army War College students, faculty and staff, ROTC cadets, soldiers from regional military bases, university students and faculty, and the general public. On a personal note, I think your new book and a lecture based on it will resound very well with the primary audience of our lecture programs, the students and faculty of the U.S. Army War College. After accepting this invitation, Ibrahim received a confirmation and his contact at the War College repeated his pleasure. He said, I'm excited to book you. I think your topic will be perfect for our audience. His topic, by the way, was all about war and conflict and in particular about the centuries of bloody wars between Muslims and Christians throughout Europe and Eurasia. Ibrahim is not a favorite of care, of course, because he gives a well-documented and clearly presented picture of Muslim warfare as both violent, vindictive, and extremely cruel. I should add, so you know, that his book is heavily documented with references to both descriptions from eyewitnesses that were recorded at the time as well as references to the works of other scholars and historians who have also studied these periods. Care, however, calls Ibrahim a, quote, well-known Islamophobe, unquote, and a lot more. But nowhere in the invectives that they aim at Ibrahim do they ever give any evidence to support their claims. It took several months before Kerr actually became aware of Ibrahim's planned lecture. 
but by May 28th, three and a half months after the initial invitation and two weeks before Ibrahim was to give his speech, Kerr had marshaled resources to organize a campaign against his appearance. This campaign was hosted by Empower Change, that's Linda Sarsour's organization, and it was also supported by Care Philadelphia and two other organizations called About Face and Community Responders Network. These groups worked together to encourage their members of all faiths to sign a petition urging Commandant Major General John S. Kim and Provost Dr. James G. Breckenridge to cancel Ibrahim's speech and denounce Islamophobia. But as late as June 5th, Ibrahim received another confirmation from the War College. He recalled it this way, quote, After media outlets began reporting on CARE's displeasure with the War College, the latter called and assured me that the event was still on. I also received an email from my War College contact saying, We're good to go for the lecture, unquote. At first, CARE was polite and civil. In a letter to the War College, they explained their position like this, quote, Raymond Ibrahim's book advances a simplistic, inaccurate, and often prejudicial view of the long history of Muslim-West relations, which we find deeply troubling, unquote. Although Kerr criticized the book severely for its lack of truth and historical accuracy, the letter did not quote a single word from the book to support their accusations that it is, quote, based on poor research, unquote. What exactly troubled them? The well-documented truth? Well, anyway, they sent this letter to the War College, urging them to cancel Ibrahim's lecture. And when they did not get an immediate response that gave in to their demands, they raised the ante. On the very next day, CARE issued a press release. It said, quote, CARE Philadelphia and its allies reject his inaccurate and bigoted viewpoint and express their concerns that such a prestigious institution as the U.S. Army War College should not be giving a platform to a viewpoint that can easily cause prejudice among military servicemen and service women against Islam and Muslims, unquote. And then... He went further. He said, quote, CARE and its coalition partners today launched a digital campaign. Now just listen to this language. To encourage the U.S. Army War College to reconsider its decision to invite notorious Islamophobe Raymond Ibrahim to deliver the lecture in its prestigious 50th annual lecture series on June 19, 2019. And then he continued again. Ibrahim's writing advances a discredited theory known as, quote, clash of civilizations, unquote, and argues that Islam and the West have been engaged in centuries-long wars. The lecture is titled after Ibrahim's 2018 book, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. The book promotes the unsubstantiated thesis that Islam, since, the, since its beginning, has, quote, terrorized the West, unquote, unquote. 
So on the same day that they sent out this press release, they also sent out a petition written by Linda Sarsour's Islamist group, Empower Change. The petition took the hysteria even further. It said, quote, The U.S. Army War College invited Raymond Ibrahim, a well-known Islamophobe and disseminator of inaccurate, ahistorical, anti-Muslim rhetoric, to speak at their upcoming 50th annual lecture series on June 19th, unquote. And then she goes on. In a time of rising white nationalism, Islamophobia, and horrific violence stemming from these ideologies, the college is endorsing and fostering anti-Muslim hate within the military by inviting Ibrahim. Ibrahim's rhetoric normalizes and justifies violence against Muslims, which is already a burgeoning problem for the military. Let's tell the U.S. Army War College, if you don't rescind Ibrahim's invitation and denounce his Islamophobic rhetoric, you're not only endorsing anti-Muslim hate, but dangerously nurturing Islamophobia and white nationalism within the military. Tell the U.S. Army War College, Ibrahim's lecture would push the same kind of incendiary Islamophobic rhetoric that has led to violence inflicted on Muslim communities, both in the U.S. and abroad. This petition is so outrageous and so hysterical that it really should be filed under the category of political pornography. It is, first of all, bullying and threatening, and it uses the basis of language that conjures up pictures of raw hatred and unrestrained violence for no particular reason. The picture that it paints is patently absurd at best and defamatory at the very least. The use of words like Islamophobia and horrific violence stemming from these ideologies, as well as just the threat of a digital campaign, were used to raise the stakes so that the Army College would pay attention. And so they did. Ibrahim's speech was canceled, although the Army College justified it by calling it postponed. So what is CARE? And how do they get to have the power to bully the U.S. Army War College. CARE calls itself the nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization. But the truth is that its support for civil rights is both biased and limited. It has a much larger agenda that has very little to do with civil rights, and it weaponizes language to achieve its very questionable aims. So where do we begin? CARE was founded in 1994 by leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas in America. Later on, as a result of the findings in the infamous Holy Land Foundation money laundering trial, CARE was cited as an unindicted co-conspirator in the country's largest money laundering scheme in U.S. history. The scheme, under the umbrella of the Holy Land Foundation, laundered more than $12 million that was raised in the U.S. from a network of Muslim not-for-profit organizations and then laundered through banks in the Channel Islands to support Hamas. $12 million. So the U.S. Army College caved in 
They caved into Kerr's demand and postponed Ibrahim's speech, they said. And they, they wrote as follows. The presentation of Mr. Raymond Ibrahim's book is postponed so the War College can pair Mr. Ibrahim's military history insights in close proximity with another historical perspective. At a time when the War College curriculum has addressed historical analysis of influences on conflict. But Ibrahim is certain postponed really means canceled. And by the way, Kerr and Linda Sarsour have linked Ibrahim with white supremacist, which is ridiculous on its face. He is, in fact, an American of Egyptian ancestry and a Coptic Christian one of the most persecuted groups of Christians living under Islamic rule than any other group in the world. But to Linda Sarsour and to Care, quote, his simplistic and flawed version of history, riddled with prejudiced stereotypes of Islam, espouses a dangerous agenda that demonizes Muslims, unquote. Really? If history is to be believed, the early Muslims needed little help in demonizing themselves. If care and empower change want to rewrite history, they will follow in the path of Hamas, for example, who claim that Palestinians are an ancient race whose ancestors lived in a land now called Israel thousands of years ago, which they didn't. The Palestinians are a made-up people invented by Yasser Arafat and dating back to the 1950s. Or they will tell you that the Jews have no history in the land of Israel, although ancient artifacts recovered from the earth nearly every day in Israel prove otherwise. And the Bible itself is a recorded history of the Jewish people in ancient Israel. And there's another point, freedom of speech. Let's suppose that care is correct and that Ibrahim's version of Muslim history is wrong. How does that diminish his right to express his views? And if the War College wants to hear them, where does Kerr get off trying to suppress his lecture? He even offered a compromise, Ibrahim, to turn his lecture into a debate against any academic of Kerr's choosing, or even someone from Kerr. But that idea was also rejected by Kerr although Kerr did suggest providing an alternative speaker. They said, quote, We are ready to provide an alternative viewpoint and suggest a pool of academic analysts who can provide an objective assessment of military and historical perspectives to the U.S. Army War College community. That also went nowhere, by the way, as far as I know. So here you see they are rejecting Ibrahim's offer to have one of their people come and debate him. They don't want a debate. It's This suggests to my suspicious little mind that this is not even about history, but about care not wanting its real Muslim history to be revealed because that was cruel and ugly and Christians suffered horrendously in their wars with the Muslim invaders. If the First Amendment allows care to air its false history to the world, then true scholars like Raymond Ibrahim also deserve the right to air their versions of history as well. And the U.S. War College would do well 
to reconsider its decision and do the right thing under the Constitution and the law of the land. For the U.S. military to bow to the pressure of a Muslim organization which has been linked to the terrorist organization Hamas and labeled a terrorist organization by the United Arab Emirates, the only possible and honorable thing to do is to right the wrong and re-invite Raymond Ibrahim to give his lecture on the conflict of civilizations between sword and scimitar. Okay, here's another story, very timely because of the campaigns that are going on and also because of the results of the polls that are coming out, and they're rather surprising. Back during the last presidential campaign cycle, I received more than my share of telephone polls. I took them all. I was asked about this candidate or that one. If elections were today, would I vote for this one or that one? Have I heard about this candidate or that one? And so forth. But the call that stands out in my mind was one that was pretty plain vanilla all the way through until they came to the next to the last question, which was, don't you believe that the nasty remarks and tweets that Donald Trump has been making should disqualify him as a candidate for president? What? How slanted is that question? And what kind of a poll would even ask it? Well, I guess a Democrat poll is probably, although they don't identify themselves, it seems pretty obvious. Well, that's an extreme example, although it really did happen. But it does underscore a point about the polls. Now look, the validity of a poll is based on a number of factors. They include the size of the sample. In other words, how many people are interviewed for this poll to have statistical value. Two, the makeup of the sample. What percentage are Democrats? What percentage are Republicans? Or what percentage are Caucasian? And what percentage are people of color? Or what percentage come from the city and what are from rural areas or from the South and the North, etc. And three, the language of the question. Is it biased or slanted in any way? Certainly wasn't that question. Does it lead a person to a certain answer or does it allow the person to come to that answer on his own without being led? These are just the basics of poll taking. There are many other factors to consider as well, but this is enough for what I'm trying to say. My point is this. In general, polls are very limited in their ability to predict the outcome of an election. We have seen this time and time again. We saw it most recently in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was predicted to win the presidency by a landslide. And then she didn't win at all. Today's polls that give Joe Biden a huge lead over Donald Trump are misleading at best. And if the Democrats depend on the polls to drive their campaigns, then they are likely to once again be very disappointed in the outcome of the 2020 elections. And that's okay with me. Now we're going to take a short break, but don't go away. I'll be right back with a story about the fastest growing demographic among the homeless population in America. And it is shocking. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. 
For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, you have heard me talk a lot on this show about the homeless living on the streets in our largest, most affluent cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I've singled out these California cities because they are symbolic of the progressive approach to systemic problems and how progressive governments deal with their poor. But California is just the poster child for homeless Americans. And Los Angeles and San Francisco are not alone. When we talk about homelessness in America, the numbers are shocking. According to Forbes, in 2018, half of the people living without a home of any kind are living in one of five states, California, New York, Florida, Texas, and Washington. And half of those who are living without shelter live in either New York or Los Angeles. But do you know what I find even more shocking? It's the huge number of homeless who are military veterans, men and women who served our country and then came home and are now living on the streets. In this wonderful country, one of the most affluent in the world, that is something I find unacceptable. Now, if you do a deep dive into the numbers, they are sketchy at best. According to a September 2018 report by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development about the previous year, 2017, there were over half a million homeless people in the United States. On a single night in January 2017, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development estimated that more than 40,000 veterans were homeless, that more than 40,000 veterans were homeless, or about 9% of the national count, of about 9% of the national count. And about 9% of those, or about 3,600, were women, women veterans. And that number has been growing rapidly. It turns out that women veterans are the fastest growing demographic in the homeless community. The same study shows that 60% of the homeless military veterans were living in some type were living in some type of emergency shelters, while the other 20%, while the other 40% were living in places that the government agency considered not suitable for human habitation. These are our veterans. These are the ones we sent to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight in wars we don't even understand. And many of them came back broken and were just kicked to the curb. According to this, now some... According to this now somewhat dated study, 
the state with which with the state with by far the greatest number of homeless vets was California, which at the time had more than 11,400 homeless vets. The states of Washington and Texas came in second and third, with more than 2,000 homeless veterans in each state, and so forth. More recent numbers reported in an April 19 More recent numbers reported in an April 2019 article in militarywallet.com showed a rise in those numbers. It reported that the number of homeless vets had grown to over 67,400 or 10% of the 630,000 homeless people throughout the country. And among those homeless were the women vets. From 2016 to 2017, the number of homeless women veterans increased by 7%. That was compared to the 1% growth of male veterans. In fact, as I mentioned before, homeless female vets are the fastest growing demographic. Why is that? Well, it turns out that there are some good reasons, or bad reasons, I should say, if you look at the shocking statistics. It seems that if a person has gone through severe trauma, it makes them more likely to end up homeless. Homeless women report that they experienced a significantly high rate of trauma as children and as adults. For example, 52% report pre-military trauma, including child abuse and intimate partner violence. 79% describe some experience of being traumatized, victimized by a colleague or a superior or otherwise rejected and stigmatized during active duty. 53% have experienced military sexual trauma. 32% now struggle with substance abuse and 74% screen positively for PTSD. So the growing number of homeless women veterans is a serious is a serious problem and it's growing worse. A new bill in Congress is hoping to help with the problem, although in my view, government programs are rarely the best solutions. <coughs> Still, the Housing for Women Veterans Act, introduced by Mike Levin, who is a Democrat from California, and Brian Fitzpatrick, who was a Republican from Pennsylvania, would allocate some $20 million to groups that are working to help women vets and their families. <coughs> the, bill required, the bill requires the Department of Veterans Affairs to analyze the bill requires the Department of Veterans Affairs to analyze shortfalls in its homelessness programs, specifically with women specifically with women veterans in mind, and to submit a report to Congress within nine months of the bill's passage. Well, nine months is a long time, my friends, and for the women on the street, it is an eternity. Any program that hopes to help them must not only provide access to agencies that can provide assistance, it must begin with outreach to the women on the street, outreach that will help them to bridge the gap between the hopelessness of their current lives and the possibilities 
that the assistance might give them. But you first have to convince them to do this. And some of them are very reluctant, for obvious reasons. So there must be a solid program that assists women as they... So there must... And there must also be a solid program that assists women as they leave the service to help them adjust to civilian life in a positive and meaningful way with initial support, guidance if needed, to find a home, with initial support and guidance if needed, to find a home, a job, and a new life that is productive, not, self, not self-defeating and destructive. It must be a program that helps them avoid the dead end that helps them avoid the dead end of homelessness. Our military men and women deserve better than what we have apparently been providing for them. Because whatever it is that has left them on the streets is clearly not doing the job. Now here's a story on a completely different subject. Let's go to Gaza. It's time to put out the fires in southern Israel once and for all. Last Friday saw another riot on Israel's southern border with Gaza. 6,500 Gazans came to the border this week, and just like every Friday since March 30, 2018, they rioted along the border fence, burning tires, throwing stones, grenades, and IEDs over the fence at the Israeli troops on the other side. Over the last 15 months, Hamas has organized border protests which are usually violent demonstrations along the security fence that divides Gaza from Israel. And every Friday, the rioters, ranging between several thousand to as many as 45,000, assemble at various points along the border and they riot. The, quote, peaceful, unquote, people of Gaza are deploying a new type of weapon, a new type of fire balloon, into the fields and forests of Israel. Do you remember last year when the terrorists in Gaza began sending helium-filled balloons with flaming rags tied to their strings across the border to Israel? It damaged thousands of acres of precious farmland and nature reserves and burned them to the ground. But balloon terrorism has taken a new and considerably more dangerous turn. Gazans have found a more efficient way to send fire into Israel. They soak a slow-burning fuse in explosive liquids and attach it to the balloon. And as the balloon flies, it drips fireballs, creating several fires from just one balloon. And to add more danger to the situation, some of these balloons also carry IEDs that explode when they hit the ground unexpectedly, igniting the grass and fields and forests that they land in with the fire from the explosives. The Palestinians see this as an upgrade, a success story. But truly, it is nothing more than pure evil. This new threat is so much more dangerous and could be terribly lethal, all the more so because it drops burning liquid and there are no controls over where the balloons are going to land. The Israeli government advised the farmers to harvest their wheat early this year, before it is ripe while it is still green, in order to save it from the flames. 
although it sells for far less that way. The fields that have been cleared give the flames nothing on the ground to ignite, and the government has compensated the farmers for the lower prices they received. And this works. But it is a poor substitute for the satisfaction that a farmer has after a good harvest of golden wheat. Balloon terrorism has become a favored way to attack Israel from the relative safety behind the lines. Multiple fires have been started on a daily basis by these incendiary balloons flown from Gaza, carried by prevailing Mediterranean winds into nearby Israeli towns. Israelis are getting restless with the government's lack of serious response to the cost, the horrible damage to precious wildlife and nature reserves, as well as the loss of hard-earned crops and grain, and the human cost of living with the constant fear, not knowing where the next incendiary balloon will land. Which brings me to the real point. The fire balloons are only a part of the problem. There are also the rockets and the riots every week along the border. When will the Israeli government decide that enough is enough? That launching fire is not just an inconvenience, but an act of war. When tactical bombings of buildings in Gaza don't stop the balloons and the flames, where is your red line? What will it take to finally put a stop to this? so that people living in that part of Israel that lies near Gaza can live in peace. What will it take? Now the politicians are getting ready for new elections, so they are distracted again. They just had an election, but Prime Minister Netanyahu could not form a coalition that would have made it possible to form a new government. So Israelis will go back to the polls again. It's crazy over there with anywhere from 20 to 40 political parties to choose from. So the winners are the parties with the highest pluralities. It's usually somewhere around 30-something percent of the total vote. So the winner then has to form a coalition with several other parties until they have a majority. In the last election, it was Benjamin Netanyahu who was number one on his party list, and because his party won the plurality of 33%, I think, he got the chance to form a new government, and Netanyahu couldn't do it. The fact that he failed is why Israel is now facing a new election after the summer. Like I said, crazy. Politics. And here is some breaking news. Well, a little bit of news, and it relates to what we were just talking about. My new book, Hamas, the Terrorist Threat on Israel's Border, has just been published by the Center for Security Policy. It's all about how Hamas operates in Gaza, how its total ideology is wrapped around the destruction of the Jewish state, and what it is that drives their leaders to mistreat their own people. Hamas has made an art form of ignoring all the necessary things they need to do to run a country. They have managed to mess up the deteriorating infrastructure to the extent that there is no longer any clean water and 200 million gallons of raw sewage pour into the Mediterranean Sea every day because their five sewage treatment plants 
have been allowed to deteriorate to the point that they are no longer functional. Hamas steals from the people of Gaza, including the humanitarian aid that it rips off to support its own officers and its fighters, at the same time that it withholds food and medicine from the people they are supposed to be governing. This book is available on Amazon and will be shortly available on America Out Loud as well. And it is the first volume of a two-part set. Go figure, part two is published first. That one is called Hamas Care and the Muslim Brotherhood, The Plot to Destroy America. This book reveals how a complex interwoven network of individuals and organizations has insinuated itself into the social, political, and law enforcement fabric of the United States. It tells how the Hamas-affiliated Muslim Brotherhood front groups, including CARE, has been working openly in the heart of America to promote Islamic Sharia, while also supporting the destruction of the American way of life in order to make America a Muslim country. That book is also available at Amazon.com and at the bookstore on AmericaOutloud.com. And that reminds me, if you're a member of Rotary or of the Lions or the Masons, you might want to take a look at the Hamas Charter. There's a copy in each one of the books. Hamas considers those organizations to be subversive and what they call sabotage organizations. And those are their words, not mine. So if you are a member of any of these organizations, feel free to take that personally. It was intended to be personal. There have always been more problems in this part of the world than there have been solutions. And the possibility of a new war between Israel and Hamas is more likely in the coming months. If you have read the Hamas Charter, you will know that they have no interest in finding a peaceful solution with Israel. They want Israel destroyed. And that is where we must leave this story for the time being, because <laughs> it could go on forever if we let it. But we will be back with more discussion about Israel and the threats that it faces every day. This is a story that's not going away anytime soon. So now I'm going to take another quick break. But when I come back, I want to tell you about what I promised I would, about the growing tension in Hong Kong as a million people or more poured into the streets to protest a bill that the Hong Kong government wants to pass and which they hate. And they are calling for the resignation of the chief executive, which is what China calls their appointed head of government. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up the Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. 
Unrest in Hong Kong has been growing since that first massive demonstration last week. It all began when the Chinese government decided to get an unpopular extradition bill passed through the Hong Kong government. The formal name of the bill is the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Amendment Bill. Sounds okay, no? Nothing about extradition there. But extradition is central to the unrest. The bill would provide legal grounds for the chief executive and the local courts to handle on a case-by-case basis extradition requests from authorities in mainland China, Taiwan, and Macau. But critics of the bill believe that if it becomes law, then anyone in Hong Kong could be arrested by Chinese authority, not just for criminal reasons, but for political reasons or objectionable business practices or any reason at all. And they are worried that this could be another step toward ending the city's semi-autonomous legal system that was promised to the British by the Chinese. So nearly one million people took to the streets of Hong Kong on June 9th to demonstrate against the bill. The demonstrators believe that if a bill is passed, the law will allow mainland China more freedom to arrest critics, dissidents, and journalists in Hong Kong on flimsy or made-up charges, and then subject them to harsh treatment that is illegal in Hong Kong, but not in China. Hong Kong is a small island off the coast of China that was under British rule until 1997 when it was given back to China. But the deal was made under the condition that Hong Kong would retain its autonomy until the year 2047. Ah, but China is impatient, it seems, and has already taken away the right of the people of Hong Kong to elect their own government. Hong Kong is now ruled by a legislature controlled by Chief Executive Carrie Lam, who was appointed by the Chinese government. Now the people of Hong Kong are demanding that she steps down and that the bill be canceled. The demonstrations continued as hundreds of thousands of people filled the streets and brought commerce to a complete standstill. Police estimated the crowd to be about 250,000 people, but organizers said that 2 million people showed up to demonstrate against the government. Both estimates are probably wrong, but what is clear is that the people of Hong Kong are angry and they're ready to take on the Chinese government. On June 10th, Lam was still defending the bill, and the president of the legislature, Andrew Lung, made the decision that a vote would be taken on the bill by June 20th. Two days later, thousands of protesters blocked the road surrounding Hong Kong's government building, where the legislature sits. The crowd wanted to prevent lawmakers from presenting amendments to the bill, and the demonstrations became violent. Riot police began using tear gas, pepper spray, and rubber bullets on the large group of students surrounding the legislature and blocking major roads. Finally, the Secretary of the Legislative Council announced that the session would be postponed until further notice, since the legislators were unable to reach the building. 
But the massive demonstrations had an even greater effect. On Sunday, June 16th, Lamb did something quite unexpected and unprecedented. She apologized to the people of Hong Kong for what she called the, quote, greatest contradictions and disputes in the community, unquote, that the extradition bill had caused. And she postponed the bill. But she also made it clear that she had no intention of resigning. However, the people continued to demonstrate because they want the bill canceled, not postponed. They see Lam's action as a delaying tactic, that the Hong Kong government will simply push the ball down the road until things quiet down and then quietly put the bill back into play. They've seen it before, so they continue to protest. They are still calling for Lam to step down, and they're chanting, Lam step down, and... Hong Kong add oil, which is a Chinese expression that means keep on fighting. So events in Hong Kong are at an impasse for the moment. The demonstrations are unique in that it is not only students and young people in the streets, but a real cross-section of Hong Kong's population. Professional people, working people, older people, younger people, all pouring into the streets on Sunday, and all with the same message, more or less. Lamb must step down, the bill must be canceled. This, folks, is a story that has not ended. Like most of the other stories I'm telling you, this goes on and on. China is a difficult master and can be very cruel. As we saw in 1989 in Tiananmen Square, when the Chinese government declared martial law and sent 250,000 troops to Beijing. The main demonstrations were centering on Tiananmen Square in the center of Beijing, where thousands of students had gathered to demonstrate peacefully. The troops used guns and tanks to brutally put down the uprising. In Tiananmen Square alone, they murdered an estimated 2,700 people, although the Chinese said it was only a few hundred. Only a few hundred. And here is another story I've been following over the last few weeks. The situation in the Middle East, in the Gulf of Oman, where two more tankers, the Front Altair and the Kokuko Courageous, were attacked by what appears to have been the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy. Limpet mines were attached to the hulls of these two ships, and when they exploded, they did enormous damage. Although the ships did not sink, the damage was called a total loss by some who saw it. Members of the Frontier Altair group said that there were three large explosions some time apart, and that when the large fire developed, they jumped into the water and were picked up by Iranian boats. They have now been released by Iran and flown to Dubai. According to my sources, the front Altair was taken under tow to the United Arab Emirates and that even as it was being towed, it was considered to still be in danger of sinking. Now among the questions that have arisen as the military analysts discuss the implications of these attacks are these. What was the purpose of the attacks? What was the message? Was it a message? Was it a warning? Was it actually an attack? And was Iran responsible? 
Some military analysts have said that we need to dispense with the idea that these attacks were intended to send a message, but not to actually sink the vessels. And this is why. Limpet mines are designed to penetrate steel hulls and disable vessels. The front altair was loaded with naphtha, which is an extremely flammable and hazardous material. The three explosions caused a fire on board that got out of control so quickly that the crew had to jump overboard. Judging from the photographs, the flames quickly engulfed the house and tank decks. Initially, it was reported that the tanker had sunk. In fact, it didn't sink, and it was towed, as I said, to the United Arab Emirates for inspection and repairs. The Kokuko Courageous was also attacked with multiple limpet mines while it was carrying methanol, another highly flammable cargo. And it was the limpet mine that did not explode on the hull of the ship that was photographed being removed by the Iranian National Guard Corps Navy. So everything points to the fact that these attacks may well have been failed attacks, attacks that did not accomplish their intended results. When is putting explosives on tankers that are loaded with methanol and naphtha, both highly flammable and hazardous materials, just a message and not a critical danger to life, property, and the environment? To put it bluntly, was this really an act of war? And if Iran was responsible, was this the opening salvo to something much more sinister? Now remember, this is just conjecture on the part of military analysts who are trying to make sense of something that is puzzling and critically important. And if they are right, the next question is, what is the world going to do about it? It's not up to the U.S. to be the only one doing all the heavy lifting, but we need to play a critical role. So it is absolutely essential that we know without any doubt that these attacks were carried out by Iran, and then assess what it means in terms of their intent and what our options are with regard to the threat that Iran now poses to the world. Any way you look at it, it requires the serious attention of Washington, and right now. And finally, I would like to go back to a topic we discussed a little earlier, about political polls and how reliable they really are at predicting, well, anything at all. And I want to tell you what I really think is going to happen. The Democrats are shouting out that Joe Biden is ahead of Trump in the polls by 13 points. As the leftist website Vox.com wrote on Tuesday, quote, former Vice President Joe Biden is still leading the Democrat primary, while President Donald Trump sure looks to be in some trouble as he prepares to formally launch his re-election. Trouble? Really? When Joe Biden held his kickoff campaign rally in Philadelphia, he drew 6,000 people, described by the leftist magazine The Atlantic, like this. Quote, The crowd wasn't huge, was largely white and older, and for the most part, only really got into it when he mentioned Barack Obama or Donald Trump. On the other hand, 
when Donald Trump held his own kickoff rally in Orlando, Florida, on June 18th. He held it at the Amway Center, which seats 20,000 people. People began to line up as early as two days before the event, and the line grew exponentially longer on the day of the rally, despite the pouring rain. One tweet read, quote, It's raining fairly hard now. People still standing in line with about six hours to go until the rally. Unquote. Another supporter drove for three days from Arizona to attend this rally. A counter-rally was planned, of course, by the LGBTQ etc. community, along with immigrants, with supporters of what they call reproductive rights, although frankly I will never understand how killing an unborn baby has anything to do with reproductive rights. Sounds more like reproductive wrongs to me. Anyway, that event will take place in front of Stonewall Bar Orlando. The event has been boasting over 5,000 RSVPs on Facebook. 5,000. A paltry turnout by comparison to Trump. But hey, they're fighting the good fight, according to the organizers, about an environment in peril, gun violence plaguing the streets, racism and bigotry running wild, and the reality of an uncertain future. Wow. When did we ever not face an uncertain future? But look at this. Trump will fill Amway Center, and there will be a substantial overflow into the streets. Trump claims that he received 100,000 RSVPs to his event, and I don't doubt that because it has happened before. And here is my point, although it should be fairly obvious by now. Trump's supporters do not respond to polls, or if they do, they may very well consider it worthwhile to skew their answers, particularly if they live on either coast. So here's the point, and it is significant. Trump's base is the silent mainstream, the people in the heartland. Maybe we should again call them the silent majority. They are farmers and steel workers and auto mechanics and coal miners and they are people who understand the value of honest labor and appreciate what Trump is trying to do for this country. Even the farmers in the heartland who are suffering now from the heavy tariffs that Trump placed on American farm products that were supposed to be purchased by China. But these farmers understand, they get it. They know what Trump is trying to do and they support him. They are largely independent and tough, and they don't need to wear their hearts on their sleeves, although they sure do like their MAGA hats. So what do these polls mean? Well, nothing, really. They are smoke and mirrors, and they do not reflect the mood of the mainstream. So when Vox.com and a host of other left-wing media tout the results of the polls that show Trump at the bottom of the list, but don't take into account the incredible turnouts to his rallies or weigh the importance of his silent majority, they are doing immense harm to themselves and their candidates and the progressive left more than anyone. They are encouraging the Democrat candidates 
and their supporters to ignore what is right in front of them. They are living in a bubble that is protecting them from reality and will lead them to believe that they are winning when the inevitable landslide turns out for Trump on election day. So what do I think is going to happen? That is exactly what I think is going to happen. Because for some reason, the Democrats are reluctant to face the truth. They did it in 2016. They kept believing the polls that said that Hillary would win in a landslide. And when she didn't, when she didn't win at all, they refused to believe it. They refused to accept it. And everything that we have seen since then, all of their efforts to unseat President Donald Trump have been the result of their inability to face the truth, to face reality. So I'm afraid that when the time actually comes and election day arrives, we are going to see a repeat of 2016, except that the numbers are going to be overwhelming for Donald Trump. That's what I think is going to happen. So the polls don't really account for very much. For one thing, it's far too early to know how people are going to vote. They could change their mind in 30 different ways. So there it is, my friends, another hour of news and analysis about some of the most important stories of the past week comes to an end. But the news doesn't stop, so I'll be back next week. And I hope you will tune in again for the latest goings-on in the world this week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. <laughs>